CorporalNetwork.com. This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by listeners like you. Thanks for using The Tome's Amazon and D&D Classics affiliate links. Welcome to The Tome Book Club. The Tome is a D&D news, reviews, and interview show, and I'm your guest host guest host <laughs> Tracy Hurley you're not the guest host that was a, a no, an artifact <laughs> I'm now a guest so I don't have any responsibility oh yes because you took on so much responsibility before <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I see I see how you sneak in that demotion <laughs> that was an artifact from last time when uh, Eric was guest hosting in your place Griner but in any case I'm your co-host Jeff Griner Jeff Greiner. The t-shirt is still available. In, in each book club episode, we discuss one D&D-related book, spoilers be damned, in full book club style. And our book, fourth book? Yes, fourth book in the year-long Sundering series. Now I'm second-guessing myself and everything. The Reaver by Richard Lee Byers, who will be joining us later in this episode. I don't have to second-guess that. I know it's true because I already talked to him. Well, joining us now is Eric Paquette. Hello. And David Gibson. Hello. Welcome back, gentlemen. Thank you. Glad to be back. And next month, we'll be reading the first half of The Sentinel by Troy Denning. Uh, That's till the end of Chapter 10, about 54%. Uh, And if you want to join us for that or any other book club discussion, please don't hesitate to contact us. You can send us an email to thetomeshow at gmail.com. And you can either discuss your thoughts on the episode or if there's room invite. Uh, we'll invite you to join us on the show. All right. Let's talk about the Reaver. We finished it up now. Go. Yes. I am surprised Chimist stayed dead, the vampire. I was totally expecting him to come back halfway through the book. See, he very much sort of... Um, I mean, there was so much else going on, I never really thought about him coming back. Um, but going through and listening to it a second time, because I, I do the audiobooks... Uh, I've just been listening to it a second time in the last uh, three or four days, and it very much sort of feels like he is the villain of Act One, and then the Chosen of Umberly is the the villain of Act Two. Mm-hmm. I yeah, I can totally see that. Now that I finished it, I it, I also felt that he that Chimus was not quite dead, so he might have been gone, but still not appearing in the book, but might. Here in a future book or something mm-hmm. with Same these characters. Yeah, I just kept expecting him to come back and be like, ha ha ha, I turned my head into mist like I can do my <laughs> arms. And the, the ultimate cheesy vampire trick. <laughs> well, and ultimately, I mean, is, aren't there traditionally like all kinds of things you have to do to kill a vampire? Yeah. yeah. Cut off its head, stuff its mouth with garlic, put a steak in it, steak burn in it. Heart. And, yeah. yeah. Dance around it on your left foot while touching your nose. Yeah, make sure to make sure the steak is well done. Yes, <laughs> well done steak to the heart. Do the hokey pokey. That's what Turn it's around. all about. <laughs> all right, so the vampire died and stayed dead. Yeah. Those are Yay. our thoughts. The end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, because he was particularly just like mean, killing people and turning them into zombies, and then. Although it, it's interesting because uh, of where my head's at from our, our discussion with uh, Richard Byers, which we'll, uh, you'll hear later. Um, 
but he almost he very much sort of represents i think the the new status quo of Thay. Right, he's you know yeah. the the premacy of undead and 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 Zaztam and all that, whereas um, Umara is more of a representation of what the they used way. to be, the way that she wants to return. Yeah, the way she wants they to be. Yeah. So the 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 killing of him and him not returning, you know, <laughs> that might be symbolic as well because it's at that point that she makes. Or is at least at the point that she decides to fight against him that she makes that turn of no, I'm going to stand up for the Thay that I want to exist. Right. Yeah. All it's old is new again. Right. Yeah. But you know, after that, uh, yeah. So High Castle's the other the undead servant of Umberly. Mm-hmm. Was a, a vendor? Is that right? A vendor, yeah, a vendor High Castle. Yeah. He basically took over the the pirates and lead in while our heroes Stead, which unlike last last episode when they said Stead was not from the previous book, he is the one that is from the previous book. From uh, Stead yeah. was from uh, the adversary. Not yeah, it was Umara. not Umara. I was right. It was yes. Stead who was from the previous book. <laughs> <That> is- <laughs> I win the internet. Congratulations. I'm raising my hand triumphantly. <laughs> Should I tweet that so we know for posterity? <laughs> I, I clearly can't control what you do and do not tweet, so you've proven that tonight. <laughs> uh, but uh, they go to Sapra, where we learn more about uh, uh, Anton's uh, pass. Where he was basically member of the government there. That yes, we, <laughs> Anton's great dark secret that he was a bum 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 corrupt government official, right? Yeah. Bureaucrat. Yes, and it is for that reason that he can never go back home again. Although, in fairness, it was he was affiliated yeah. with a, a, a bailer. A, 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 you know. Well, he was responsible for helping. Through his negligence, you could say, uh, because he didn't really know, of bringing the Baylor into uh, the country. See? That ran rampant and killed a bunch of people, and he felt really bad about it, so he went off to kill a bunch of people as a pirate. Yeah. Right. Because that makes it all okay. Yeah. I also think it's (laughs) interesting that in the last few weeks we've had, I mean, it's a pretty common trope, but they can't go back because of something in their past. Yeah, it is in, in fantasy heroic story. There's always usually that thing about right. not going back home. You have to, the journey must continue and stuff like that because something happened. I mean, sort of. It's sort of a way of telling the orphan story without them actually being literal orphans. Yeah, yeah, but it's just yeah. like the in one, it's loving the wrong person, and or dragonborn, and in this one, it's you know. I let the great evil into town and it killed a bunch of people and they're mad at me. <laughs> and of course, in, tra- in, in traditional uh, literary style, um, he kills a bunch of people or he's res- he's partially responsible for allowing something to happen that kills a bunch of people. And uh, as characters are want to do in stories, he decides to compound the problem by going out and killing a bunch of people, right? He says... Right. I'm, I've got this stigma for doing this bad thing, so I'm going to go out and do a bunch of really bad things. Well, it's not like the whole thing about expectations if you have uh, certain uh, 
expectation that somebody's going to be a bad person, then they're more likely to be a bad person. Yeah. Uh, and then, so, and on top of it, it's just, it's kind of uh, amazing to me that one bureaucrat can ruin the entire city, or not the entire city, but a huge <laughs> chunk of it. Uh, and there's no other checks in place. All we have are the front lines of the customs officials. You should be. <laughs> so you, now you've got a little more respect for the TSA, don't you? Uh, <laughs> sure. That's basically what he was, right? He was he was termission uh, TSA. Right. Like he's supposed to look through all the the stuff coming into the city and make sure there's nothing that could be. And I mean, and the thing is it was spread over many shipments. It wasn't like he let the one shipment in that happened to have this thing in it. It was, yeah. Well, and, and he, he doesn't make any bones about it. He was corrupt and, and he, he was complicit. In it. Like he knew he was allowing things that he wasn't supposed to allow and he allowed it anyway. So, I mean, right. I, his guilt is maybe overblown, but it's not entirely unjustified. He, exactly. He, he did bad things. Oh Yeah. He just didn't realize it was going to hurt somebody. Right. You thought, you thought it was a small, petty evil rather than a big blown out to kill thousands of people? Right. Evil. I find it makes him kind of an interesting character because you always talk about how villains are the ones who are in self-denial, that they believe that they're always doing the right thing, which is what makes them villains, where, um, where he knows he did a bad thing. He admits to himself he did a bad thing and knew he was doing a bad thing. So <laughs> that might make him a hero. Right. Almost. Well, maybe. Kind of. <laughs> Less of a villain. Yeah, maybe. At least, <laughs> at least a villain with a conscience. Yeah. Um, or and, and, and a guy. As Until he starts killing people. Right. So th- at the beginning of the book, Anton is very much a really bad person. Mm-hmm. By yep. the end of the book, he's sort of redeemed himself, right? He's, he's saved the, the city and, and, and the country, I guess. Um, he's been uh, acquitted I, or you know, the charges against him have been dismissed. And I know well, he, he's this great hero. From what I gather, the charges are still there. They're just turning a blind eye because he... Save the city, save the country type thing. I thought they, they sort of uh, said in the epilogue that, that all the charges are, were gone now. And then a lot of people were upset about it because, you know, they didn't see him save, save everybody because it was way out of sea. All they knew is that, you know, a bunch of their family or whatever died. Mm. But in any case, he, yeah. he's sort of, you know, he's, he's the hero. Uh, the not necessarily... Um, appreciated hero but he's the hero and he goes off with umara you know to to help her in her quest to to redeem Thay. right um, he's become just enough of a hero to go to Thay. right well which is which is interesting right because without stead is he a hero or is he just going to go back to his old ways because i feel like stead was very strongly the thing that made him not a bad guy yeah it was the combination of stead and umara but I think more Stead, because Myra also yeah. comes from Thay, which is not really a nice place. Yes, she wants to bring him back to, to, to Isidore, so she has aspirations, but... Right. So, yeah, but, and, and I don't, but I don't think he's a good guy because of Umara. I think he's loyal to Umara. Umar. Oh, yeah. But well, loyalty you know, to somebody who's horrible doesn't necessarily make you a good person. Well, but the thing is, is that she's not always horrible either because she, she helps uh, keep him going at times when even uh, the hope that Stead gives him isn't enough. 
Right, but she's only not a horrible person because of Stead also. So can they can they continue to be heroes even though Stead's not with them anymore? Well, it depends on why you think that they weren't here, like why you think that they were so bad before. If you uh, think the reason why they were bad before is because they had lacked they lacked hope, then and now they have some. I don't think they need the font of hope to keep having hope. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think it's also. Yeah. I mean, if they're headed towards Thay, you don't have to be a good person to be a hero in Thay. You know, it's a little bit like like playing in Dark Sun. You know? The standards are very low. Everybody's really horrible. So if you're just a little bit less horrible, yay, you're the good guy. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Eric, you sound like you're trying to get something out. <laughs> oh, I, I, I'm forming my thoughts. About, uh, about it, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> so... Nor are they the only bad guys. I mean, other than even Evander, it's like the whole pirate people are going to hunt them down before they see the lions. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, everybody's trying to hunt them down, right? Oh. Right. Nobody likes them at, at up until the point that they make uh, an alliance with the, the Druid Circle. Oh. And I think you could argue now pretty much the only allies they have are those Druids. Right. Well, and the people they fed. Well, well, but yeah. those are people that Stead fed. That's true. Yeah, they're not with Stead anymore. So, yeah. and 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 uh, Anton makes it very clear in the epilogue in in his uh, inner monologue that he feels very strongly that these people still want want his blood. You know, right? They have not forgiven him. Hmm. Yeah. So it. It felt to me like the first half of the book was moving in a very steady course. Like it was telling a, a certain type of story and it sort of stuck to that. It was this, this conflict of who's going get to the, get the boy and I want the boy and I want the boy and what are you going to do with him? I'm going to take him back to Zaztan to turn into a god. I'm going to take him off to, to a vendor so we can help Umberly or whatever. Uh, but the second half, well, I don't know. The second half seems to do a lot more. You know, it, it moves a lot well, faster or something. Yeah, it does. More stuff happens. Yeah, yeah. Well, they they, they now have the the first half was basically sort of trying to find a focus as they were struggling who gets the prize, which was Stead. But in the second in the second half, Stead actually sort of becomes a character rather than just being the the MacGuffin. The, the MacGuffin. And and then they have a direction because they're now trying to accomplish Stead's goal. To go to Sapporo and then they find out about the, the, the famine and all, all that. Right. I, it does go as fast, and I found at the end it it really ended quickly. Is it, 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 like they killed off a, a vendor and then oh, we won. Mm-hmm. And and then it, it's sort of there's a brief epilogue, but then it stops. So. It, mm-hmm. Well, and, and I feel like it's more than just just how it ends, right? I feel like everything sort of goes quickly. Like we're introduced to this dru- these druids, and in the next chapter, it's the final battle. You know, it's it, like it goes really quick. Yeah, it's uh, they're they're in the jungles of uh, Golanthador fighting lions, and they're in a Termish dealing with the druids, and it's a big giant battle at sea. Finally, it's the uh, 
the war in the Pacific that was hyped about early, and then it's over. Well, bam, and, bam, and, bam, bam, and bam. that big giant war at sea, like the preparations, like Avinder is able to raise a massive armada like that. You know, <laughs> it takes, and and I get that he's a. a the head of a rising power and, a, and an important seafaring church or whatever, but still to bring together that many ships from that many locations that, that generally wouldn't even like each other uh, and get them all on board that quickly without any need for diplomacy or whatever. Like it all happens just really fast. It's like, okay, yeah. we're not going to waste our time with that. Let's get on to the final battle. Big army, big army fight. Yeah, it's definitely a very big tonal shift in the middle. But I don't know if they could have uh, condensed the, the beginning much more because um, Anton was already pretty hard to get his motivation, which seemed to be changing rapidly. If you condense that down even more, his sudden shift to being on Stead's side would seem even more uh, abrupt. Mm-hmm. Well, even in the even in the second half, his he's. You, you still feel Anton says, "Okay, I'm with him," because but he's still not too sure for several times for being with with Stead, but he's there because he's he's there. Well, so. he just about ditched him in the, the jungles, right? Yeah. So. No, I think that's true. I think he, he needed that that arc um, to develop. And, and ultimately, he makes the decision to help Stead instead of capture him. Because there's a fight going on, and the guy that he was going to sell him to is trying to kill him. Yeah, you know, and suddenly it's like, well, I can't sell him to the guy who's here right now. So <laughs> I guess I might as well keep trying to get him for myself. He's it's like he kept trying to get Stead out of habit, and that made him an enemy of the person that he was supposed to be allies with. And you know, oops, now I'm kind of accidentally on Stead's side. So how do we feel about uh, Stead not actually confronting a high castle at the end and just passing off the mace to Anton? It, it, it feels correct for the character because he was always, throughout the whole book, he's always been a very pacifist character and very much a support to help out others. Mm-hmm. So the fact of just passing on, saying, okay, passing on the power to be able to face off someone else just felt... Felt felt makes sense for that for that for Stead to do. Certain type of cleric versus a paladin. Yes. Yeah, I mean, on one hand, it makes sense for the characters. On the other hand, if you look at it, it's sort of the more cosmic sense. This whole story was a conflict between Umberly and Lathander, and ultimately, the final battle was between a, a servant of Umberly. And a servant of nobody. A servant of the servant of Lathander. Well, and not even an ally of the servant of Lathander, right? It wasn't – the final battle was not Umberly versus Lathander. It was Umberly versus Anton. Is Lathander a very militant god? Um, he can be. Yeah, he, he can, can be. be? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Richard, uh, Richard Lee Byers mentioned that, mentions that in the interview. Uh, as well, that Lathan- you know, that Stead being a pacifist is not necessarily a function of him being a follower of Lathander. Lathander oh. is known for for being militant when he needs to be. Yeah. Although, this is also. Could- go, Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to be wondering if he's setting something up for Anton, because Anton doesn't really have a class yet, right? Other than, I don't know, some sort of pirate. 
Dex space fighter, kind of. You could call him a fighter. You might call him a rogue. Yeah. You know, he's very much... There's several moments where he sort of talks about um, picking out the weaknesses of his enemies. And and they were fighting the angels in the temple. And um, he had a hard time finding a weakness because everything was the same color, you know. So it all blended together. Right. But he's also very trained in... uh, in martial maneuvers because he knows when, how they're going to move and everything, which not all rogues would be. Well, right. But that, and that's, that's, I mean, that's a matter of, of flavor too, right? Is that him yeah. describing Anton getting an advantage for a sneak attack or is that him, Anton doing a, a martial maneuver? Well, no, but I think sometimes Anton actually calls out like kind of what maneuver it is almost. Maybe he's a, he's dual class. Exactly. Multi-class. Maybe yeah. he's going to become a paladin. <laughs> he's a he's a rogue fighter who's going to pick up a few levels of paladin, like Shadowbane. Not that there's any real pointing of him having any magical abilities. But I'm just saying. Or he could be one of a class from Arena War, and he's a pirate. Yeah, and I I actually kind of don't want him to become a a, a paladin or whatever of Lathander. Like right. I like. I like the idea of him struggling with the with with this whole I'm I'm a pawn of the gods but I don't even follow them you know right dealing with with his role in the cosmic order of things well his role is fairly typical of adventurers because for the most part in campaigns and such it's the the evil god fighting directly with adventurers while the good gods just sit about and kind of watch the good gods never actually get involved it was just send heroes to do the bidding but the good god here was just as involved as the bad god which i actually really like about the book passed on the buck like good gods tend to do oh well yeah i mean he passed on the the power right to kill a vendor but Stead, but Stead was still very involved in the story and very yeah. involved in being very active. You know, it wasn't like Lathander was just sitting back doing nothing. And Umberly made appearances, you know, in person. But so did Lathander at least once. Yeah. And I th- I feel like too. I mean, the whole point. This book isn't about Stead. It's supposed to be pretty much about Anton, according mm-hmm. to our conversation. So, um, you know, this is kind of like the beginning part. This is his call, really, because. There's still adventure before him, so if you're talking about the hero's journey. Like, he did some cool stuff here, but I feel like it's just the beginning to call to adventure. Yeah. No, I, I could definitely see more stuff happening in more books that would be interesting to read of Anton and Romara. And maybe, maybe uh, Stet does show up with them, maybe. Well, make sure you let Watsy know, because uh, Richard told us he's, he does not yet have a contract. But he's got more stories he wants to tell. Well, personally, I was kind of hoping for Anton to die. I thought that would make much more of a satisfying hero's journey of him dying to uh, <laughs> redeem himself. I, right. I, I, think, I don't think you're wrong. I think that would have been really interesting. We don't get very many of those. Because they want to make franchises. Yeah. That's can be saying. Well, and, and – <laughs> It's not just they want to make franchises. Authors want to see their main characters continue on, right? That too. They want to keep telling yeah. stories, and you can't do that if you kill the main character in book one. Wait, wait, wait. Don't underestimate. George R. R. Martin had, seems to be doing well for himself, and he just did just that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry, spoilers. Um. <sighs> now you ruined the whole Game of Thrones series for me. I'm not, watch- <laughs> I'm not reading it now. Oh, 
there's many, many deaths. <laughs> well, I, I have watched the first season of the, the TV series, so already there's very many deaths. <laughs> so, uh, Reaver. Reaver. Yes, Reaver. Um, Having reading the second half, after Tracy wasn't here the last time, I was actually thinking about, I think it was Jeff commented on behalf of Tracy, that there's not that many female characters. And all of a sudden, three female druids pop up. And I'm like, yes, Bechdel test, passed. Huh? Yeah, so. yeah I, I was uh, happy about that, too, because I was noticing the relative lack of female characters. Um, and also just the, even the background characters often weren't described, they're described in a, a masculine way. Uh, not that that's necessarily bad, but uh, just something that I happen to notice a lot. Uh, and I also I also uh, found it interesting that the charm person, uh, when oh, what was the guy's name in the town? He's trying. He has a servant girl making him the a servant woman making the chicken for him, and he eats like the very last piece, so nobody else can have it, even though he's full. And then he uh, sets his sights on the woman, and is wants to force her to do things, but they call it explicitly what it is. Mm-hmm. They don't, um, they don't dance around it like we are now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, you know, if I had more energy, I would rape her, but I don't have that energy. And therefore, and then he gets interrupted. So nothing right. actually happens, but we know how, how bad he is right. because those were his thoughts. I don't remember his name, but he was the captain of the, the octopus. Was that the name of the ship? Yes, yes. Uh, yeah. Mormond, Mormond, or something. Mormon was the name. Yes. Was it, was this a commentary on the the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints? Is that the Mormons? Well, there's a D in there and everything. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I joke. I'm kidding. But yeah, so uh, I thought it was interesting if you were going to have uh, the, uh, topics like that in there, uh, at least calling them what they are and not have it be this thing that's supposed to be exciting potentially to somebody was a a step in the right direction for me. I don't know. Although I don't know that having it in there necessarily added much to the the story. He was a relatively, I mean, he's a bad guy and it establishes just how bad and horrible he is, but he's, he's also barely in the book. So I, you know, yeah, the only thing, and I guess I could ask Richard about this, but the only thing I could think of is like, if he was trying to, as an author show a way of doing it, that wasn't, uh, I don't know to use George R. R. Martin type stuff. <laughs> this keeps coming back to the thrones, huh? I know. <laughs> Make the realms gritty, keep it topical. Which is which is funny though, because like we've seen a lot of gritty stuff, and part of the conversation I've heard on a meta level is. This is trying to bring – like part of what, what these guys feel like happened with the realms was in, in recent years is it's become more gritty and that's part of the problem that they're trying to fix when they bring it and bring it back to the old norm. And yet their stories are you know every bit as gritty as anything that, that's been around in third or fourth edition. Yeah, and it's hard because I, I, I differentiate. I think I feel like high fantasy can still be gritty. It's more like if it, depending on what it the topics it's dealing with. Like if you're dealing with violent rebirths, that's gritty to me, even if it is potentially high fantasy. But yeah, um, I felt this one had a lot more high fantasy stuff in it. But yeah, but and, and we mentioned this in the interview. But I feel like um, the characters. 
you know, uh, Umara and, and Anton were very gritty characters because they're bad people who do horrible things. Right. But to me, that's not, oh, yeah. So it's just a def- different use of the word gritty than sure. I probably use it diff- differently. I get you. Yeah. No, there's the, the book deals lots of metaphysics and high fantasy and big armies and stuff like that. So, it, yes, it feels very high fantasy and not the. Low, and riding around on it, the backs of magical talking lion gods? That I, I, I was like Narnia. <laughs> it, it felt no Banyan has always felt very Narnia to me. Like he, honestly, it was it was neat to have him pop up and and for that kind of stuff to be there. But no Banyan has never been one of my favorite elements of the realm. So okay. <laughs> so what? Uh, speaking of no Banyan and his return, uh, what does? this story sort of add for us to understanding the sundering and what's going on and where the realms are going and, and all that kind of stuff. How do, what do we know about the new status quo from reading this book? Well, they seem to have removed at least some of the plague lands, if not yeah. uh, all of them. I don't mm-hmm. know if they went, the rain went as far down as the plague rot lands, which seemed to be pretty far to the south. I thought it was interesting that we had somebody who could really cleanse the plague too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so a lot of the the spell plague lands are are being cleared out. Um, the rain has fallen and has re risen the the waters back to their old coastal areas, which makes me wonder about all those cities that developed on the coast and are now they're all wiped out. Yeah, I was actually thinking that as well. They don't I, mention it. I like Erisper, and it was on the coast. Is it now right. underwater? Well, yeah. and what about all those people that built their businesses? <laughs> Well, and, and th- I mean, that's going to be some con- – and they sort of do touch a little bit on that. I, wasn't that in this book where they talked about, you know, this thing got – this – you know, there's there's buoys or whatever uh, going into this town because uh, – showing where the things are that, that were submerged from the rains. Right. So the ships avoid them. Yes. Is an Erisperdo on an earth moat just floating above rather than being – no, Airspur is. I mean, Air, there's earth moats around there, but I don't think Airspur is on an earth moat. It's on built sort of onto the cliffs uh, okay. in this natural sort of uh, cove. So now it's an island, maybe. But it's on the side of the cliff, so like half of it's going to be underwater. <laughs> I'm very worried about Airspur. <laughs> well, that's where the uh, was it the aquatic uh, Genasi. The Genasi. Well, it, it, yeah, it actually has a like. The different Genasi have different roles in it's all Genasi, um, but yeah. each one has sort of a different role. Like some Genasi, the, the head of like the 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 police force is one type of Genasi, and the head of the government is another another type of Genasi, and all that. Yeah. Well, Jeff, cool. what they can do is they can take these big uh, air balloons and attach it to the parts. I don't know if you ever watched Ducktales, but they raised <laughs> Atlantis by using these huge uh, helium filled balloons. What they need to do is bring uh, contract uh, Bruce Cordell to write another Realms book because he, that's where he that's where he was right. He had two right. books at Nairspur, so I want him to to write another book, sort of giving us what you know the story of what happened to Nairspur. Yeah, but isn't Nairspur was was part of a bear, and since the Sundering will be the separation of a bear and Toril, will Nairspur go with a bear? The final book and just disappear. That's a good question too. And <laughs> I, again, I like Airspur. I don't want to lose it. So, and ultimately, we can't be losing all of those things from a beer, right? 
Um, you know, we know Dragonborn are still going to be around because it's one of Aaron Evans' main characters as a Dragonborn. Yeah. Well, there's yeah, probably be... going to be some stragglers left in the world when the, the worlds will separate that are just basically they would be the equivalent of the um, uh, what are that telepathic race in Eberron? Kalashtar? The Kalashtar, yeah. Kalashtar, where basically they they're basically roaming folks because they don't their their own world got destroyed. So, but they showed up at at Aberon, So, mm-hmm. yeah. So they're no longer a full race. They're just a, a bunch of individuals. Yeah. So do we sort of? So we also saw the return uh, of Lathander. We saw the return of Nobanion. Uh, and one of the crit- criticisms of the fourth edition realms was that they they killed off all the gods, right? And so they're starting to bring some of those gods back or change them back into their old form. Um, I, does anybody else feel like though we're gonna we're basically gonna see a handful of gods come back throughout novels, and then eventually they're just gonna say, okay, and here's a bulleted list of how all the other ones came back. Well, once they remove the uh, uh, all the Toral, the was it the Return to Aberbarts? That should also bring back all the uh, the, the racial, the, the national pantheons. That was not coming out. Oh, like the like the, the, the Mulholland, Mulholland. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which will really be a big dump of gods. Yeah. Sure, but there's a bunch of gods. Like, I mean, the Dwarven pantheon is half of what it used to be because they all died. Yeah. Are they all going to undie? Um. I'm currently playing the in the Dean Encounters, and one of the uh, in it we found an artifact, and that was being repowered, recharged, and it's from one of the gods that, mm-hmm. that got that got killed off, fighting off the Durgar. So during, I think the time of troubles or something like that. So and we have we we spoke about it actually today, and about maybe because the, the artifact of him. Got recharged. This could be an indication of his return to the world. Feels so. like a soap opera. Yeah, soap well, opera, <laughs> superhero comic. It's like it's like nobody dies. It's like it's not the first time that gods die and come back. I mean, how many times that has Mistra died and come back? No, well, Mistra Ball's been dead. Mistra dies and somebody else takes over. Oh, okay. Although this Ball's time, this time it does like look like Mistra dies and comes back. Hmm. Sorry. I was just saying, a balls has been dead for a hundred years in the realms, and he seems to be coming back. Maybe was chosen as in the Baldur's Gate series. Right, right. right. Well, in in the um, he came back in uh, Murder in Baldur's Gate, right? Yeah. So he, that's a century ago. He's been dead and still keeps least, coming back. Yeah. yeah. And he died in time of troubles. Exactly. That's old school. Yeah. Any other uh, changes or, or insights we get into the Sundering or the Realms, the New Realms, through this book? It does seem like they're setting up some changes for Thay, maybe, especially with the, the adventures. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Bring back the old Thay. Do we want the old Thay? Do we want the new Thay? Do we want the old Thay? The new Thay is really the old Thay before the old Thay became new. Wait, did that make sense? <laughs> the current Thay is more similar in my mind to Thay of the first and second edition days. And the third okay. edition Thay is what they're trying to bring it back to. Or what at least what Umara is trying to bring it back to. The, the um, nation of merchant wizards. Right. I don't, 
I'm not a big fan of the uh, necropla, um, necrocracy, whatever, the, the rule by undead of they. That always felt a little odd, as opposed to all the different schools of magic. At least having a country ruled by undead rather than evil wizards makes it feel more different than Netherrealm. Yeah. I mean, do we need another empire of evil wizards? We already got two, you know? Well, the, the empire of evil and dead isn't exactly a less cliche in fantasy. No, but at least it's a different cliche than we, one we already have. You know? Which is true. Let's have yeah. two different cliches instead of two of the same cliche. Because more and more I have trouble differentiating Fae and Netheril in, in, in like as villains in a story. Like they, right. they could be interchangeable. In a lot of ways, Thay could have been the big villain in a lot of Aaron Evans' books, in a lot of the Brimstone Angel books, instead of Netheril. It wouldn't have made much difference other than geography. You know, it just made sense for Netheril to be there. So I like the idea of trying to differentiate them a little bit. Well, now they'll be the merchants. But I know the Netheril <laughs> are slavers, so All right, there you the, go. They're the <laughs> merchants and slavers based on the different schools of magic. So they're still, I mean, they're not shadowy, and you know, I, and there's differences, but in terms of the role that they play in stories, it's fairly Listen, they don't similar. Wear, they don't wear a red cloak. <laughs> the the Shadowar don't? Yeah, I don't right. think so. <laughs> Unless they choose to. Unless they choose well, to. They could transform the day to basically have a council of all the schools of magic and so that you can still have some leaders that are undead. They're that's just what it used to be. <laughs> oh, that's what it used to be? Yeah. Okay. They had a council and there was one Zulker was the name of the head guy from each school of magic. And okay. Zaztam was the head of necromancy and the most powerful. Okay. Yeah. That's what, that's, that's what it is they're trying to bring it back to. Okay. So. And Jeff's point is that, that it's not different enough. And Although, so at least, I don't know. As we talk about it, though, I, I do. I am coming around a little bit to the idea that making them merchant wizards is different than conquering wizards, which is what we have in Netheril and current Thay. Right. And, and I think the, one of the other big differences is motivation, right? The, the motivation of Thay is to make Zestham a god. And the motivation of Netheril is to serve themselves and some of them, at least marginally, um, their god, which is Shar. Right. But the, either way, though, they play the big bad evil wizard empire. Yeah. <laughs> you know, one's one shadow wizards and the other ones is necromancy wizards. Yes, because shadow and necromancy very different. Exactly. <laughs> so, how do you feel about the removal of the the plague lands? Going back to that, because the the spell scars in the blue flame were one of the the big mechanical elements that was brought into the Forgotten Realms for the the fourth edition campaign setting. I think that's a good change getting rid of that or is it kind of a removing th- anything in fourth edition so i like the idea of most of it going away and still being able to say there could still be some pockets of it here and there that gives like you know dms and authors something to play with right which is well, kind of what I- they did with the time of troubles they still had air pockets of wild magic like that's that's been a long established trope of of the realm so i, I don't have a problem with that because it's hard with every, all the old magic not working the same way anymore uh, with the spell plague. So it would be, I think they kind of need to have it go back a little bit to where old magic does work. But maybe not all the time. So there. 
<laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, just like because reading the books, it's like it was getting kind of annoying to be like, oh yeah, we have this artifact, but it doesn't really work anymore. But you can be the one to solve it and make it work again. Well, although they've done that a little bit now going back, right? Um, was it Catabri in The Companions goes through this whole thing of, oh, hey, look, magic went back to the old way. Anybody here remember how to cast spells anymore? Right. And everybody else just sort of hand-waved that and not even addressed the fact that it happened. Like, you would think that was a big deal. Suddenly, all <laughs> magic stopped working and everybody had to relearn it. But, you know, whatever. We got over it. Right. I think there's a lot of wizards that died during those couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> all the ones who made enemies and now they can't defend themselves I should be able to use this spell more than once per day it's an encounter spell why can't they <laughs> use it again <laughs> I'm just curious how they're going to fix the underchasm I mean it's a giant hole that's the size of well, probably Alaska more than Texas well I mean there's, in? even even the raising the seas up right I mean they, they explain it in this book is that it just rained and 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 eventually the druids instead came along and made it rain a whole bunch all at once and, and now it's done right now the oceans are back up to their normal levels mm. except it's not like that water went away the whole story was like that it spilled into the underdark and whole thing whole areas flooded and was, that was part of the underchasm story as I, as I recall yeah so they just invented like like it my scientific mind doesn't understand like there is a conservation of mass and matter here that is being you know defied you know and that's one thing that's kind of more of a a bigger topic for fantasy literature in general is just people having that uh thought pattern right of wanting to know the conservation of matter I mean, ultimately, that's also part of what makes it epic high fantasy, right? Mm-hmm. Right. That's the sort of thing you hand wave along with the idea of of writing writing giant uh, magical talking lions. Right. Crazy things happen, and it's weird. Move on. <laughs> <laughs> well, any last thoughts? I enjoyed it. It was a good book. I... It satisfied my my enjoyment of pirates and swashbuckling Arr. and yes, Arr. ended on a much more dramatic note. Hmm. So you just walk away from it feeling that was a very climactic last half. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I, I don't know that it the story was as compelling to me as the adversary was, um, but. It was also it was still one of the better stories of the Sundering so far. I mean, of the four that we've read. So I'm I'm yeah. looking forward to to more, and I'm hoping that he gets the ability to, to write those. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess that's our last thoughts. Yes. We'll go ahead and head on over to talk to Richard Lee Byers, author of the book, now, and see if we can get to the bottom of all the rest of this stuff. Tracy. Thanks, Jeff. We're here now with Richard Lee Byers. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So uh, the question I like to ask first with a lot of these uh, interviews on the book club is being as concrete or as esoteric as you want to be, what is the Reaver about? Uh, Well, on the uh, human level, it's about um, people uh, getting a second chance to be – honorable and uh, decent after uh, having a rather uh, 
shady uh, past. On the uh, kind of uh, mega Forgotten Realms level, it's about um, the rebirth of a god and two gods fighting through their proxies to become the uh, dominant force in a particular region and shape its future. Right on. Yeah, that's definitely one thing I noticed about uh, at least two of them is that they're they're kind of our heroes, but they're not always heroic. Yeah, well, I wanted it to be as you know, God, uh, Lathander is the god of uh, the dawn and kind of uh, by extension of uh, you know hope and new beginnings. So I wanted to make it a story about redemption. Hmm. So to do that, I had to start with people who needed to be redeemed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I want to sort of think timeline wise with the the sundering. Mm-hmm. Um. Most of the books leading up to this have sort of been anticipating this sundering event, right? Everybody's sort of laying out their pieces and and playing their games and trying to benefit for when this thing happens, we're going to be ready for it. Um, But this is the first book where I really feel like something's really changing now, right? With the the seas refilling and gods coming back – is is it fair to say that now that the sundering is no longer being anticipated but is happening in this book? Yeah, in my book, it is very definitely happening. Uh, maybe uh, to uh, I think it was kind of happening some in um, you know I mean I think it's been building all along, but mm-hmm. it, yeah, in my book, it's it's really going. Yeah, because I guess in Aaron's book, I think the there were those islands and the land masses in the sky that fell. Right. So there's kind of some stuff, but that's not really um, uh, in focus. Like, we hear about it happening elsewhere, but we don't really see it too right. much. Right. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, I think, I think my, my book is probably the, probably is the first one where the uh, great changes to actual, you know, the actual face of the land and stuff is, is integral to the plot. Mm-hmm. Well, and that and that was the next thing I was going to say is that there's two sort of at least to my noticing there's two big setting things happening here, right? Lathander's back, uh, which we'd sort of hinted at uh, in some previous products and uh, uh, adventures, as I'm, as I'm recalling, um, and the seas have raised again to pre-spell plague levels. Is that basically the two big setting things that are happening here, or is, or is there anything else that I missed? Those are the big things. Uh- I mean, and if I mean, there's a third big thing that you know could happen, but but the uh, heroes are trying are, are essentially fighting to keep it from happening, and then it doesn't. So, mm-hmm. so, but as far as the two the the two real big changes, yeah, I would say Lathander's return and then the sea rising. Right on, and and as part of the sort of sundering um, conclave of of minds that it sort of put these together was it intentional to have um adventures prior to your book that sort of hinted at the return of lathander you know honestly i didn't know anything about that oh, okay uh it's uh, i mean it, if if they if they told me decide if we're going to do this or not i probably would have selfishly said no don't do it because that way the impact of lathander returning in my book will be all the greater but it probably doesn't really matter sure. but uh, <laughs> but like i said i i, I wasn't I actually wasn't privy to that part of the decision making at all. Okay, you're familiar with what adventures I'm talking about, though. Yeah. I, okay. 
yeah, the, the adventures that you know up on the you know the been promoted on the website. Right. That, that, you know, the there's the guy that's like the kind of the crippled paladin of Lathander. Yeah, like our big dish. new character for the Sundering. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I I know about all that. Okay, I just just <laughs> wanted to make sure I wasn't you know, uh, speaking about things that that were unknown. No, it's, it's not hard to find something that I don't know about, but I actually did know about that one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Tracy, I'm pausing every now and then. Make sure you have time to ask questions before. Yeah, I no, no, I'm okay for now. But okay. I, you, you have very heavy realms, heavy questions. I, I do have very realms, heavy questions. I try to be very uh, digging deep with these because it's book club, right? So we're assuming that everybody's read the book and, and knows what, what happens. Um, so in the in the previous uh, books in, of the Sundering, uh, Netheril sort of played a central role of villain in, and I, I all three of them really. Um, and then Thay sort of played a secondary role as a villain. In this book, the focus completely changes over to Thay and a lot of local concerns, and as well as Umberly and some other villains. Um, are these stories that are going to pay off later on? Are we going to see sort of Zaztam's plots play out in bigger ways and, and, and you know, more, more, with more focus on it? Or is it just going to always be sort of around the periphery? Well, that's... Um uh, you know that that's my intention. I don't actually have a contract in my hand to do those books right now, so I'm hesitant to say, "Oh yes, you will definitely see so and so." But um, assuming that um, you know, assuming that I, I get to write what I want to write, uh, you know, I've already done a whole bunch of stuff about Fay in the realms, and I uh, mm-hmm. uh, my personal plan is to do a whole lot more if they'll let me. So. Okay, so I you'd do, like to continue yeah. on? Uh, I mean, and you sort of set up this this book with the characters or couple, some of the characters moving on in the direction of Thay, right? Exactly. Was that yeah. was that your intent then? Was to take them to Thay so you could continue telling stories in that place? Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Well, and you also set up a big potential power struggle with the talking about Thay of a hundred years ago was better than the Thay of today for uh, certain other groups. Right. Yeah. That's all. Uh, assuming that. Um, Assuming that uh, I, I get to uh, continue telling this, that, that this particular story that I want to tell, yeah, all that's going to pay off. Okay, so and and when you say Thay of a hundred years ago, you're talking about third edition, basically Thay when they were more mercantile and all that. Well, I'm talking about the um, the Thay that uh, ceased to be in my um, uh, Haunted Lands trilogy, mm-hmm. which yeah is basically the Thay that you're talking about. Um, you know, I, I wrote uh, I wrote that trilogy as kind of a you know kind of a tragedy because even though the earlier version of Faye can be seen as uh, an evil, very evil land in certain respects, it was also kind of a high magnificent culture mm-hmm. that provided a uh, a good life to uh, a lot of people, even though a lot of other people were you know. Wretched and in slavery and stuff like that. So it was. I, I was. I thought we'll picture it as kind of like the Roman Empire, only with uh, only with evil magic. But um, <laughs> but uh, the, I mean the the way I wrote the trilogy was that as bad as it as as bad as it was from a moral perspective, it was um, vastly superior to what what we replaced it. Mm. And uh, so, to me, that 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 trilogy can be read as, as you know, kind of a, the tragic fall of a great culture. Mm-hmm. And um, but the, to me, that's not certainly not the end of the story of Faye. And I, I want to uh, 
do a whole lot more. I think that's one of the most interesting parts of the realms. And now that I've dug in and written a bunch about it already, I want to do more. Cool. So we've had quite a few books already in the Sundering. Are we ever going to find out what's causing it? Um, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, um, I mean, what it's, it's kind of like, um, I could tell, I mean, I can, on a certain level, I can tell you what's, you know, I, it's obvious what's causing it, but what's causing the cause, I don't know <laughs> if it's quite as obvious. I'm not, I don't know to what, what, the, what, how deeply the novels are going to get into that. Ed Greenwood is like batting cleanup. Right, he's supposed to explain everything that the rest of us don't explain. I keep hearing that in these interviews. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so I hope that by the time you read the Herald, uh, you you will uh, you won't feel dissatisfied with the quality of the explanation that you got. I'm just envisioning a, a 100 page epilogue uh, at the end of the Herald, where Elminster sits down and is telling stories to the local farm children or whatever. Uh, and it's just him sort of expositioning, explaining everything that was going on. Yeah. <laughs> of course, I mean, there is, uh, you know, there's more than one way of looking at it. I mean, I've heard Ed say more than once that his intentions for the realms were always, always that the gods would be kind of uh, mysterious and on a certain level unknowable to to mortals. Mm. And that would, would be reflected in, in the, the, the products and... Uh, if you extrapolate that to pertain to great cosmic events as well, then you know maybe there would always be a level of mystery to it. But I know that's not the answer that most fans want to hear. <laughs> so, um, well, and ultimately, the, the gods can't be that mysterious when two of them show up in your book. Well, you know that is true, and that was kind of um, that was kind of a uh, that's that's kind of an interesting uh, point in terms of uh, how how. Much, how much they're going to be portrayed like that going forward. Mm. From what I understand, the, the gods in future realms fiction may be less of an onstage presence than uh, they've been in a lot of books in the past, including this one. But, and, you know, of course, they can always change their minds about that kind of and stuff. And is that sort of following the idea that the time of troubles was sort of the beginning of all this time of upheaval and upheaval, and this is the end of it? And so during that time period, the gods were very active, and now they're going back to the backgrounds. Yeah, I guess that's um, that's kind of part of it. They, um, I mean, it's it's more, I think, kind of an aesthetic. You know, it's what it's like a lot of this stuff. It's an aesthetic, sure, decision really that then you try to. Uh, you know, you, you you try you you try to work up the the, the reason for it after the fact, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, that is that as I've heard James Wyatt explain it, that is that is the idea that the time of troubles was the beginning of a period of great upheaval, and that we are uh, now with the sundering getting to the end of that. Hmm. So we'll still be um, so we'll still be having uh, you know. Big adventures, big important events, but you know, not not the gods being cast down from the heavens and stuff like that. So anymore. Although that said, like Crucible was one of my favorite realms books when I first started getting into the realms, mm-hmm. which is all about the gods, right? It's from the perspective of the gods, right? Yeah, I'm kind of, as a fantasy writer, I'm kind of, uh, I'm, I'm I kind of like having the gods not actually be an onstage presence too much in general. Although, as you point out, in, in, in the Reaver, I certainly uh, 
certainly did a bunch of it because the story called for it. But uh, when I read a fantasy book and, and like the gods, uh, God comes down and tells the hero to go do something, you know, I, I always think if I was the hero, of my end, I would say, well, you know, why don't you do it? You're the one with all the power. <laughs> <laughs> Which has oftentimes been people's critiques of the realms, right? Why do I have to go around and save the world when Elminster is always there to save it? Or Drift? Yeah, well, that, yeah, that is true. I actually think that um, – yeah, I actually think there are a couple answers to that. One is mm-hmm. that, um, you know, is this vast world and he's not everywhere. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, he's not everywhere. And another one is it's kind of uh, – it's kind of a convention of genre fiction, you know. I mean, you just have there are certain things you just have to roll with to enjoy the story. It's like if you read uh, DC comics, you know, you know why doesn't uh, you know why isn't the Justice League on every case? You know, whatever uh, <laughs> whatever Green Lantern has something really tough to do by himself in his own book, you know, why doesn't he just get the Justice League on the phone and they all go take care of it together? Yeah, you know, that's logically what they would happen, but you know. They have a Green Lantern solo book, you know, so it, it is what it is. But uh, above me on that, though, I think it, in, in Ed's stuff, you know, he talks about uh, the idea of, uh, of of the great powers being uh, leery of uh, getting involved with too much because, you know, if, if Elminster's out there messing around all the time, then that's going to prompt uh, Stas Tom or Larlock or somebody to be out there messing around all the time, too, you know, and that... The, it's only by um, exercising a measure of restraint that they keep uh, the world from just ascending into this, uh, you know, blasted battlefield where all the great powers are out there mucking with everything all the time. Right. The power of the status quo. Let's not upset things. Right. <laughs> now, it, it occurs to me that we – I mentioned that there are two gods make an appearance, but uh, – but depending on how you interpret it, we actually had three, didn't we? Uh, yeah, if you consider uh, Nobanyan to be a god, then mm-hmm. yes. So uh, explain a little bit of what, what is Nobanyan's role in, in the story. Like what, what, is, what does he do that, that propels everything forward? Well, he's, um, you know, he's not in that much of it. Um, I base, and he was actually kind of uh, an afterthought on my part where um, – I I knew that you know we were I knew that we were going you know where the story was going geographically basically from west to east along the southern shore so I was looking at the at the source books and uh, looking at the source books and finding uh, you know finding interesting things that could happen along the way and I came across Nobanian and I thought well you know what how did the spell plague affect him you know and then. Is is he still in this area? Because he wasn't. I didn't find him mentioned in any fourth edition stuff. Mm-hmm. So which, you know, so I was like, well, what happened to him? Well, it'd be interesting to find out. And if I have him, uh, if I have him, uh, you know, tainted and then uh, redeemed, that's just going to reinforce the the themes mm-hmm. of uh, cleansing and rebirth and 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 redemption, second chances that much more. And I just, you know, I, I thought he was just kind of a kind of a cool entity so uh yeah i kinda just kind of just threw him in to be honest mm-hmm. i didn't when i outlined the book he's i'm virtually certain he's not in the outline he's just um just partway through i said okay well now they're on uh you know now they're in golfendor what happens there and i thought okay well he happens we'll do that 
You yeah. got to establish a bit of uh, Realms canon uh, in the margins, huh? Uh, yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> I mean, I can't. I, one thing that, you know, it, it's obviously the, the Troll six book series is obviously on a certain level about, uh, you know, bringing back stuff that uh, fans have missed. And uh, so I was trying to uh, play on that and uh, with no Banyan. And then when they get to uh, the Emerald Enclave, you know, they meet some characters that are mentioned in um, old uh, material that, um, as far as I know, have not been seen in any realm stuff for a long while. But I've researched them, and by God, they had longevity. They could still be around, so I put them in. Yeah, well, like with Nambanian, I really actually liked the scene or, or that part of the book. And I think part of it was just it had that element of the fantastic mm-hmm. that uh, I feel has been kind of missing in some of the books. Because it's a lot of the, some of the books we've read recently have been more, in my mind, gritty. And here was something that was pure, like, to me, fantasy. Oh. Yeah, well, I'm, gl- I'm glad you liked it. Yeah, I mean, he is. Yeah, he is a. He is a. Does have a very kind of high fantasy feel to him. I mean, that's for sure. It, it's uh, particularly when he's enlarged by the yeah, still right. Yeah, I I, 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 I liked him a lot when I was. Uh, I actually enjoyed writing that part of the book quite a bit. And, um, and the oh, sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I was going to say that the other part that called out to me with that was imagining Stead writing. The, the line of magic, right, right. Uh, from I forget where they were, where the druids are over to the sea. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. The uh, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely uh, it, it's this book is definitely I think kind of a little more, a little more high fantasy and a it's in some ways than. Um, than some of the stuff I've done in the realms, although it really has that, I think, has the, the gritty part of it, too. I mean, Anton's a pretty gritty character. Yeah, I was going to say, your your heroes are probably grittier than most of the heroes we've seen because, you know, two out of three of them would be villains in different situations. That's true. Right. Uh, now, the character of Stead was originally sort of uh, made it Easter-egged or cameoed in Aaron Evans' book, The Adversary. Right. Uh, was there anything in this book that you sort of laid in that is going to show up in later on in the Sundering that we should be looking out for? Um, well, you know, I hate to spoil surprises. <laughs> um, there, but uh, I mean, there is a character that appears in this book that you will see again in uh, Troy's book when you read that. Sentinel, okay. And uh, I'm, I'm not. You know, I'm I'm a little vaguer on uh, what's what the final shape of Ed's book's going to be than uh, I, I am about Troy. So I mean, it's possible that Ed is going to you know cameo some of the characters for, who crop up throughout the series too. But I'm not I'm not really sure about that. Oh, you didn't hear it? Ed went ahead and killed Anton. Oh, that's not a problem, is it? <laughs> okay, well you're not continuing the story. <laughs> that's why you haven't got that contract yet. That would be. The I'm. Uh, I'm still getting over the fact that Bob Salvatore killed Farron. You know, mm. <laughs> <laughs> this is, that would be harsh if it's happened again. <laughs> or no, Bob didn't kill him. Um, uh, Paul Kemp killed him. What am oh. I saying? I should get my uh, get my killers right here. That's right. If you're gonna if you're gonna talk about somebody murdering characters, at least get right. the right murder. That's right. 
So speaking of the future of, of your characters, Anton, Stead, Umara, um, you mentioned that you don't have a contract for them in the future, but you do, do you have future plans for all of them or just the two? Um, I have future plans for Anton and Umara. I don't have a specific future plan for Stead, but that doesn't mean I, I wouldn't use him again. You know, if, if, uh, he could easily, uh, fit in, uh, some story that I want to tell at some point. I mean, actually, assuming that I, uh, assuming that I'm allowed to continue with my uh, Brotherhood of the Griffin series in the realms, you know, I have a um, character in that in those books who's a uh, priestess of a Mountator, mm-hmm. and uh, obviously uh, there's you know there's going to be issues with uh, you know with the worship of the sun god as now he's not a Mountator anymore. He's Lathander again. I could easily see Stead bringing bringing Stead into that storyline, but I don't have any specific plans for him mm-hmm. right now. Now, Stead st- strikes me as an interesting character because of his um, unusual pacifism. You know, most heroes in the realms aren't pacifists, right? Um, and and on one hand, it's really interesting because of that. On the other hand, I could see where like you're limited. Like, how much further can we really push this pacifism thing? <laughs> before yeah. it's just not practical anymore, you know. Yeah, well, yeah, it's it's. Uh, I mean, and Lathander's not inherently a pacifist god, as far right. as that's. But I mean, the thing about um, the reason Stead is the way he is in in the Reaver is that uh, you know it needed to be a story about um, Anton. So uh, you know, it, Stead couldn't be the character that's you know the big monster killer, you know. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> He needed to be a character who, despite who, despite his tremendous importance, actually needed to be protected. So uh, you know that 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 precluded him at this point in his growth as a chosen, having uh, you know smite the bad guys kind of powers. Now, as, as he moves forward, he might develop those kind of powers. Who knows? But um, well, and it occurred to me that, or it does occur to me that that keeping stead pacifist reinforces the fact that he's a child. You know, a child might balk at violence, whereas an adult who's who's had a lot of experience with violence wouldn't think, you know, anything of it. Yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, and, and the, the thing I said before about him needing to be a figure that needs need protection, you know, that's why he's a kid. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's, that's part of it, too. Everything I, everything I could do to make him chosen but still vulnerable, I did. It also kind of reminds me that I just thought about that Anton is kind of more like Samwise because, yeah, so it's kind of like, because Stead, well, part of the problem with Stead is, like you said, he's very pacifist and, and he's a child and stuff like that, so he doesn't necessarily make a strong primary character anyway. Right. Where Anton struggles in deciding to follow this kid was, a, I think, the much stronger story. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. I mean, Stead doesn't really have a um, Stead doesn't really have a character arc in the sense that you know he his his personality evolves, his powers evolve, but he doesn't. Uh, but it, he already comes into the story knowing what he's going to do mm-hmm. or what he's supposed to do, and and eventually he does indeed do it without really ever wavering from that path or anything. Uh, whereas with Anton and Umara, they both start out. Uh, wanting to do one thing and, and, and wind up turning into 
rather different people by mm-hmm. the end of the story. So that, yeah, that's that's a lot. Uh, that, that that gives you a lot more to work with as a writer. Yeah, and pretty much the people they want it to be rather than uh, the people they were in some ways. Right. Hmm. Especially if you go back into their backgrounds, right? Ne- yeah. Neither one of them started off as villains, and, and circumstance sort of thrust them into it. Yeah, they, they didn't have any other path. Yeah, that's that's pretty much true. I, uh, I'm, uh, I've been some some readers have taken me uh, to task for for uh, you know just how bad Anton is at the start of the book, but you know he, <laughs> he he's got to ha- he's got to be in a hole to climb out of. <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, and, and it's not – I mean, it's well, halfway through the book before he even really makes that switch. Uh, you know, it's right up until that first naval battle that – I mean, he still has it in his mind. I'm I'm going to get this kid and sell him, you know? Yeah. I lost you for a second there. Oh. I was just saying that he he doesn't make a, the switch quickly, right? It's a, it's a lengthy process and, it, you know, it's almost half the book before he changes from not wanting to grab the kid and sell him. Yeah, I think that was the only way to uh, make it credible. You know, he couldn't just meet Stead and then bang, you know, he's a new guy. Mm-hmm. And that, that wouldn't have been very interesting. That wouldn't have been believable or interesting. So, yeah. Right. So he needed, yeah, he needed to gradually evolve. And Umara needed to uh, gradually evolve. And hopefully they do in a, a way that you can believe in. Yeah, in, in, in Umara's case, it's almost more of a she gradually sort of. Uh, I don't know, develops a backbone to, to stand up for being the person she always wanted to sort of be anyway. Right. You know, it's just, it's just, a, I'm no longer going to be forced into things and right. more than, more than a revelation of, I don't want to be this person. It's just a, I've always known who I want to be and now I can actually stand up and do it. Right. Yeah. Stead gives her a little bit of, Stead, or actually a little more, Stead gives her some hope that things can be different. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's that's that among a number a number of other experiences she has through the story is, is the catalyst. The more we talk about him, the more I want to hear, see more about about Stead and where he goes and what he does. <laughs> I, I want to come back to Stead and like you know five years later when he's a little bit older, but he's you know still fairly young, and see what's going on. Well, that would be interesting. I mean, he's um, I mean he's could actually um, I mean he could he could actually now. Have to start dealing with uh, things that are morally gray in a way mm-hmm. that he did before when he was on his great mission. You know that. Right. Uh, well, they, you even make the point at, towards the end of the story, right, where it's all over and you're sort of in the epilogue of what well, we've accomplished this great thing that we were supposed to do. Now what? You know what's yeah. life? What's life like now that we don't have this quest? Exactly. Right. You know now that Lathander's not telling Stead go do this, he's got to figure out what to do on his own. Mm-hmm. Although, of course, the Thaner could always, I guess, eventually go tell him to go do something else if I wanted to play it that way. Sure. But, but I but think it's interesting to ask that question. You know, okay, so like, something big happens. Now what do we do? How do we get on with life? Yeah, I, I think that is that is an interesting question. I mean, and, they, uh, and uh, you know, I definitely know the answer for, uh, for Anton and Umar. Mm-hmm. I know where life takes them. And uh, Stead, uh, well, you know, he's going to stay with the Druids for a while. Mm-hmm. But yeah. uh, after that, I mean, I think logically he has to get involved in the whole issue that's, uh, you know, raised earlier in the book about, um, well, the Church of Amanator can't be the Church of Amanator anymore. Right. It's got it's got to change back to being the Church of Lathander, and I, that isn't necessarily something 
that's accomplished easily. I would, mm-hmm. at least I wouldn't think so. Which was also touched on uh, is a schism that was touched on in uh, Paul Kemp's book too, wasn't it? Uh, I'm trying to remember. Did did Paul get, did Paul get into that? Because his uh, wasn't the monastery that he had um, up in the mountains there. Wasn't that a Lathanderite? I, I think maybe oh, yeah. it was. Yeah, mm-hmm. they they were they were holdouts. Yeah. So <laughs> now it's it's all coming around again. Lathander's right. were a pretty big deal in this sundering thing. Yeah, I think that there's I think there's some in, there's a, an interesting story to be told about that. Like I said, I you know my uh, my inclination is to uh, tell a big part of it in uh, in Brotherhood of the Griffin. If uh, assuming that uh, you know I get a contract to continue that, yeah. series, which also which I hope that I will. But and I so I can easily see dropping Stead into that at a certain point. What happens when people are like, you know, why don't you just create the food for us? Why do we have to keep farming? Because <laughs> mm-hmm. Stead seemed very willing to do that kind of thing, right? Yeah. That great cost to himself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's an interesting question. I mean, you can kind of, uh, I mean, you can kind of ask that of any, anybody in the realm that can do realms that can do miraculous stuff you know it's like i, I always think that in terms in terms of uh d and d d it's an interesting question why you know anybody ever has to get old and die you know mm-hmm. yeah because there are well understood uh, instrumentalities that can prevent all that kind of thing mm-hmm. yeah very good well i i think we're reaching the end here tracy do you have any last questions no, i think i'm set and Richard, do you have any sort of last things you want to let our listeners know about uh, the the Reaver or anything else? Uh just that uh, uh, if you haven't read it, it's uh, it's it's uh, good stuff. It's uh, it's uh, you know sword and sorcery adventure on the high seas. It's got uh, it's got uh, it's got gods, goddesses, uh, giant vampires, magical talking lions, and sorcerers. See, see. <laughs> Serpents, you know, krakens, pirates, you know, whales, everything you need, you know. <laughs> Very good. Well, thanks for joining us. Oh, it was my pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Uh, and that's all it is for this episode of the Tome Show Book Club. We want to say thanks to our contributors, Eric M. Paquette. Where can people find you on the interwebs? Easiest place to find me is on Twitter at Eric M. Pack, P-A-Q. Eric with a C, Pack with a Q. Yes. And we also have David Gibson. Hi, I'm, uh, I'm at DND Jester on Twitter, and I do a webcomic at 5MWD.com. And I just actually started publishing books on there. So I have my first book, How to Become, Become an Adventurer, which is available on Amazon and CreateSpace. You can actually probably get there through the uh, Tome Show Amazon store and give the Tome Show some money while buying my book. Woo-hoo. Help two Tome Show people at once. <laughs> And if I could plug a little bit more, I actually have another book that I'm working on, which isn't out now, but should be out by the time the, this episode comes, which will be a com- compilation of my blogs on world building. I'll probably be slipping in some art from uh, Tracy's Kickstarter, the uh, Prismatic Art Kickstarter into that. Yay! Awesome. And we also want to thank all of our listeners, speaking of what David was just bringing up, for using our affiliate links over at D&D Classics if you're going to go buy some D&D PDFs and at Amazon if you're going to buy pretty much anything in the world. And if you'd like to contact us, you can send us an email at 
thetomeshow at gmail.com or give us a call on our biz line. It's 919-BIZ-TOME, 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. And we've gotten a couple calls lately, so I know it's working. Yay! You can find show notes and other great Tome Show shows over at thetomeshow.com. And that's our thoughts on The Reaver. Next month, we will read the first half of The Sentinel. We said that was up through the end of Chapter 10. Uh, written by Troy Denning, returning to the realms after uh, some time away. Until then, keep turning the page, Tomites. I'm on the wall.